Hopefully you can hear me. All right, there we are. Good deal. Well, that was a great message this morning. Um, I tell you what, that got me. Uh, just the being able to contemplate the coming of our Lord. And, and even as I was going through and preparing for the lesson today and, and thinking about the realities that Rehoboam faced and the challenges uh, that, he, uh, that he fell to, um, I was just reminded once again how much I look forward to that day when our Lord will come and when the kingdom of this world will be the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And, and he will reign forever. And so that's, of course, our great hope. Well, turning our attention back to the Old Testament now, um, if you've been living under a rock at all, or if you haven't been living under a rock for the last two decades, you und undoubtedly know the name Tiger Woods. Uh, the young golf prodigy and phenom be began his professional career in 1996. Seems like a long time ago. Uh, but there in 1996, he was named the PGA Rookie of the Year, and he became the youngest player to achieve a Grand Slam, and he boasts a total of nine Grand Slams. Uh, the first major he won in 1997, and in that, he actually destroyed his closest competition by more than 12 strokes, which is a record that I believe stands to this day. Um, a huge lead. But he also became the youngest and fastest to accomplish a total of 50 career tournament wins. Um, and he achieved his first number one world golf ranking in 1997, just one year after starting. And then, uh, amazingly, from the years 1999 through 2004, he held that number one ranking for 264 consecutive weeks, so just under five years. And then after a, uh, he was eclipsed just for a short period of time after that by Vijay Singh, um, but then in 2005, he regained the top spot and went even longer for 281 weeks, um, which was almost five and a half years, which uh, he lost that number one ranking in 2010. In 2000, Tiger Woods received the largest endorsement deal in history, which was for a five-year, $105 million contract with Nike. And Forbes listed Woods as the number one spot on the list of athletes who had made the most money over, the, over 10 years with earnings of something like $845 million, so approaching a billion. So clearly Woods dominated the world of golf for the better part of 14 years and obviously reaped the benefits of it. In 2009, which was not his best year by far, he still had six PGA Tour wins, but in 2010 and 2011, he had zero wins and only placed in the top 10 four times out of the 20 tournaments he played. What happened? By the end of 2011, his world ranking fell from number one at one point, uh, the beginning part of 2010, to number 58. So really fell off. Since that time, he's been in and out of the golf world. And other than a pretty good comeback run in 2012 and 2013, he's seen limited success. His last tournament win was in 2019, four years ago. So what happened? 
there have been, of course, some injuries that have plagued him, but many believe, and I, and I think this is accurate, that the real reasons were the decisions that he made in his personal life. In 2009, it emerged that Woods had had a number of extramarital affairs with multiple women. There was also an odd accident where he ran over a fire hydrant outside of his home, if you remember that, and he had to be pulled out from his car by his wife. And shortly after that incident, uh, Woods issued a statement where he it admitted to the affairs and he checked into a sex ad addiction clinic in December of 2009. At that point, after that announcement, he was dropped from his endorsement deals with Accenture, AT&T, Gatorade, GM, and Gillette, and later others would follow. In 2010, his wife, Ellen Nordegren, divorced him, and in perhaps his career low point, he was arrested in May of 2017 on a DUI charge apparently related to abusing prescription medications. On scene, the officers reported that he could hardly stay awake at that incident and that he failed multiple sobriety tests. We look at all of that and say, all that potential. He could have been great. The great star, and he was, he still is, he still holds a number of records and so on. Um, but that great start to end where he ended, I don't know if you remember at all, but there was a mugshot that came out of him in 2017 where he just looked totally different than what he was. So what happened? Um, how did he come to this? There was an article about Tiger in 2017 in Sporting News Magazine uh, following, uh, following that incident, that DUI incident, and the article ended with this statement, whatever is left of Woods is beginning to overshadow his achievements. For one of the most decorated and accomplished golfers the game has ever seen, the story of Tiger Woods might not have a happy ending. Now, fortunately for Tiger, there is still time for him. Uh, he's still time to humble himself and repent, and hopefully the Lord will see fit to call him to himself. But what's the point? Why are we talking about this? How, how often have we seen and heard stories like this? Someone who starts out well and then later throws it all away. We are going to be, see something similar in the life of Rehoboam. Think of all his potential, the greatest mind of all time in his father, Solomon. He had personally written instructions to him from Solomon, some of which we can see in Proverbs. He had a front row seat to witness God's judgment as a result of Solomon's failings. And we will even see today that despite his rocky initial start, that he seemed to recover uh, some, and he did some good things, including remaining faithful to the Lord for a period of time, leading the southern kingdom to properly worship the Lord, and even making some key strategic improvements militarily in the land. However, Rehoboam, despite his background and early successes, would turn his back on the Lord, and as a result, the kingdom would come under God's judgment. So Rehoboam left the kingdom in really a worse state than when he began. 
So like that article about Tiger Woods, we could say of Rehoboam, whatever was left of Rehoboam overshadowed his achievements. So in looking at the story today, there's a, there's a couple of themes, there's probably more than this, but a couple of themes that I think emerge pretty significantly. And one of them is the reality that we must be constantly aware that choosing to turn from the Lord to engage in sin often has disastrous impacts to us personally, to our families, and to those that we strive to lead. Secondly, another prominent theme that comes out is uh, this, that one of the most amazing realities about God is that he is eager to demonstrate his grace and mercy towards those who are willing to humble themselves. While the story we are going to cover today is a sad one, there is nevertheless a bright spot from an astounding picture of God bestowing his mercy on Rehoboam and on the nation. So let's get into the story today. Now you notice that the text for this morning is from 1 Corinthians 14 and 2 Chronicles 11 and 12. And in this case, the passage in 2 Chronicles covers this uh, event, the story, in a lot more detail. So we're going to concentrate on the Second Chronicles passage this morning, although we will we'll look at one part of the First Kings passage. So please turn with me to Second Chronicles 11, and technically we're going to begin in verse 5, but I'll briefly mention the first four verses. Um, now, for the last few weeks, we've been covering the reign of Jeroboam in the northern kingdom. Jeroboam ultimately reigned for 22 years, and as we discussed, he was an evil king that led the northern tribes away from the Lord in establishing a religious practice that the north never abandoned. Uh, and they didn't abandon it, and all the way up and through the destruction of the northern kingdom in 722 BC by Assyria. So that is what was going on in the north, but today we're going to shift our focus back to the south, to the southern kingdom. And you'll see this happening a lot as we get into the, the text uh, over the course of the year that will be northern kingdom, then back to the south, then back to the north, and back to the south, and so on. So today we're back to the south, um, and the story starts here in Second Chronicles 11, from when Rehoboam had returned from the council at Shechem, where Jeroboam and the ten northern tribes rebelled after Rehoboam foolishly listened to his young friends and vowed to increase their workload over that which Solomon had required. And then as a result, Rehoboam was forced to flee, and he returned back to Jerusalem, stinging from the loss, and began to raise an army to force the northern tribes to submit to his reign. And if you remember, God intervened and told them not to go to war and that he had ordained what occurred as a result of Solomon's sin. So God basically said, this was all according to my plan and you're not going to change it, so don't go to war. Which Rehoboam, to his credit, listened and chose not to pursue the northern tribes. And so that is what we see in those first four verses of chapter 11, which I'm not going to read because we did cover that section previously. So what we're going to look at in, to start with really is 
Rehoboam's early successes. And so that'll begin here in verse 5. So if you read with me there, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 11, beginning in verse 5, Rehoboam lived in Jerusalem and built cities for the defense in Judah. Thus he built Bethlehem, Edom, Tekoa, Bethzur, Soko, Adalam, Gath, Meresheth, Ziph, Adaraim, Lachish, Azekah, Zorah, Aijalon, and Hebron, which are fortified cities in Judah and in Benjamin. He also strengthened the fortresses and put officers in them and stores of food, oil, and wine. He put shields and spears in every city and strengthened them greatly, so he held Judah and Benjamin. So after Rehoboam and the people decided to heed the Lord's warning and not go out to war against the north, Rehoboam turned his attention to enhancing the military fortifications of the country. So the country under Solomon had spent such a long time in relative peace, and the focus clearly from Solomon was more on building projects and other types of en enhancements. Uh, the country had probably gotten a bit soft, and so Rehoboam recognized this and decided to take action to strengthen the defenses. Now I have a map up here. Um, I have a map up here, and I'm going to zoom in. Terry showed me how to do this. It's a little hard to see, I know. Um, but I have a map, and what you'll see here is I've put circles around those cities that were mentioned here. And you'll notice in the text that the cities are all in groups of three, essentially. So I've highlighted in colors just the different groupings. So um, this was the first group here, Bethlehem, Edom, and Tekoa, and then moved out a little bit. You can kind of see it's almost like concentric circles that he's building out a little bit and a little bit more. Uh, but the key thing about um, all of this is that they were very strategically placed cities. Jerusalem sits along the spine of a north to south mountain range, and you can kind of see it on here a little bit. It's probably better if I zoom out. But there's a north to south mountain range that uh, Jerusalem sits on. Jerusalem itself is about 2,500 feet above sea level. And then, of course, once you get out to the Mediterranean Sea, that is sea level. So within a relatively short distance, uh, you would have to ascend up a pretty significant chunk. No, it's not like the Rocky Mountains, but uh, they were... They were reasonably high. And so much of that mountain range that Jerusalem sits on is flanked by very steep and treacherous valleys. So in reality, Jerusalem is a fairly easy, at least back then, it was a fairly easy place to defend uh, because it wasn't the easiest place to get to. And there were only actually a few roads and a few passes that could be taken to get all the way to Jerusalem. And you can see here on the map, some of these roads are, are shown, and you can see where these cities are. They're basically blocking all of the key roadways that would move up to Jerusalem. So an invading army would have to, especially if it's a large army, they'd have to go past multiple of these cities in order to make it all the way to Jerusalem. 
Now you notice his concentration uh, was on um, really more of the southern defenses, although there was a little bit in the north, um, but it was more on the southern because I think, I, I just wonder if Rehoboam heard about a guy over in Egypt that was starting to, uh, starting to grow militarily in his strength. And we're going to see that actually occur later in the story. So um, there was one city that was mentioned here that Rehoboam fortified that was on the coastal plain, um, and that was over here, Gath. Uh, and so all of the other cities were more at the uh, either the major crossroads and um, those valleys and such that were the pathways up to Jerusalem. So again, all of this was very important, key strategic locations that he wanted to strengthen. And I think that was a very wise move. Note in verse 12 that it says that he strengthened them greatly. So he put a lot of work and effort. And so, again, wise moves that he made there. Um, all right, how do I get out of here? <laughs> So going back, looking at these early successes, there was those strategic military improvements. But then we're also going to see that there was a period of spiritual faithfulness. Now, we actually covered this passage previously, and so I'm not going to cover the whole thing, but I do want to look at it briefly because it is helpful to understand what was going on. So beginning there in verse 13, it says, Moreover, the priests and Levites who were in all Israel stood with him, meaning Rehoboam, from all their districts. For the Levites left their pasture lands and their property and came to Judah and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam and his sons had excluded them from serving as priests to the Lord. And he set up priests of his own for the high places and for the satyrs and the calves which he had made. Those from all the tribes of Israel who set their hearts on seeking the Lord God of Israel followed them to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. And they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and supported Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, for three years. For they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. Now, Cam covered this passage, the parallel passage, actually, in 1 Kings a couple of weeks ago. So I'm not going to cover this in depth. Uh, but what we see from the passage is that the Levites and faithful members of the northern tribes who wanted to properly worship the Lord moved from the north down to the southern kingdom and supported Rehoboam. But the key point that I want to call out here is that we see that for the first three years that Rehoboam remained faithful to the Lord and followed in the footsteps of David and Solomon and their devotion to the Lord. Now, obviously we know that there were some problems with Solomon there, but we also believe that later in his life that Solomon repented, which is likely when and why he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. But either way, it's clear that the pattern of both David and Solomon for at least most of his life was followed here by Rehoboam. So I think we can see here that he began in those first three years, he began to reign well, despite his initial foolishness with the events around losing the 10 northern tribes. But both in considering how to strengthen the country militarily, as well as to remain faithful to what re God required, I think we see wisdom. Unfortunately, as we will see, the good start 
is not going to last. But before we get there, the writer inserted a section that's about Rehoboam's family. Now this section is almost like an interlude uh, that doesn't really fit with the chronology of the previous and following sections because it addresses how Rehoboam managed his family, which would have been for a much longer period of time than just his first three years, probably even extending before his reign to some extent. So let's look there at Rehoboam's family and ruling wisdom. So verse 18 says, Then Rehoboam took as a wife Mahalath, the daughter of Jeremoth, the son of David, and of Abihail, the daughter of Eliab, the son of Jesse. And she bore him sons, Jeush, Shemariah, and Zaham. And after, he took, and after her, he took Makkah, the daughter of Absalom, and she bore him Abijah, Atai, Ziza, and Shelemith. Some good baby names, you know case anybody needs some. Um, Rehoboam loved Makkah, the daughter of Absalom, more than all his other wives and concubines. For he had taken 18 wives and 60 concubines and fathered 28 sons and 60 daughters. I don't know how he remembered all those names. Um, but Rehoboam appointed Abijah, the son of Makkah, as head and leader among his brothers, for he intended to make him king. And he acted wisely and distribute, distributed some of his sons throughout all the territories of Judah and Benjamin and to all the fortified cities and gave them food in abundance. And he sought many wives for them. So what we see here initially is uh, this prominent wife number one, Mahalath. And so now I don't have time to get into all the intricacies of her lineage that's listed here. Uh, she almost certainly was not the direct daughter of one of David's sons and brothers. She was probably the granddaughter or potentially even great-granddaughter. Uh, this kind of thing where generations are skipped is not uncommon. Uh, that was done um, often just to show lineage. And the point here is that she was from the royal line. So she would have been a royal princess, and as such her three sons would have had special claim to the throne. So I think that's what the writer is really getting after here. But then there's this second prominent wife who was the favored wife by Rehoboam, Maka, And um, she was also the mother of Abijah, who would become the next king. Again, she was probably the granddaughter of Absalom. Um, so also a royal princess. For whatever reason, Rehoboam preferred her to all of his wives, but she had four sons, one of which, as I mentioned, Abijah was going to become the next king. And so we also see from the passage that Rehoboam had a bunch of other wives, uh, 18 wives and 60 concubines, and then they produced 28 sons and 60 daughters. It's a lot of names to remember not just of the sons and daughters, but of the wives as well, I, I'd be in serious trouble. There's a reason that God didn't design us that way. Um, but I have to say, Rehoboam saw what happened to his father Solomon, but as often happens, he apparently thought he could plunge into the same waters and not encounter the same problems. 
And so this was still a violation of the warning that's found in Deuteronomy that kings were not to multiply wives. Now we do see that pattern. We saw it with David. We saw it with Saul. We saw it obviously with Solomon, and, but he like put it on steroids and uh, extreme case situation. So maybe Rehoboam wasn't quite that bad, but he still wasn't careful to follow what the law of God required. So we're also told here that Rehoboam, after his death, wanted his son Abijah to reign as king. And so he wisely put Abijah in a position of leadership publicly over the rest of his sons. He also apparently gave responsibilities to his other sons and sent several of them out to the various cities around Judah likely to serve in some form of official leadership capacity in those local towns. And then he also provided for all of their needs as well as providing wives. Now, I think something that Rehoboam wanted to avoid was a power struggle among his sons once he, once he was gone. So it was not uncommon in that day for a king or a son of a king to assume the throne and then go and kill all of his brothers and anyone else who could possibly lay claim to the throne. So it seems here that Rehoboam truly cared about his sons and didn't want anything like that to occur. And I think there's also a lot of wisdom here in a father preparing his son properly to be the next king as well as setting up an appropriate support structure with the rest of the brothers. So uh, to for them to be able to have a place and to be able to serve well. So I think there's a lot of wisdom in what he did. So from a summary perspective, I think looking at all of this that we can see some things about Rehoboam that suggest that he had a good head on his shoulders. He cared about his family. He made some good strategic moves, both militarily and to prepare his kids. He initially remained faithful to the Lord, so he knew what he should do. But in the midst of that bright start, something happened. So let's look at chapter 12, verse 1, where we'll see Rehoboam's rebellion and detestable idolatry. So verse 1 there of chapter 12 says, When the kingdom of Rehoboam was established and strong, he and all Israel with him forsook the law of the Lord. Now this is a sad verse. Although given Israel's history, I can't say that I'm surprised. This seems to be about the, the way that things typically went. So just how bad was this? First Kings gives us more detail about what was really going on. So keep your finger here in Second Chronicles and turn over to First Kings 14, beginning in verse 22. So there we read, Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy more than all their fathers had done with the sins which they committed. For they also built for themselves high places and sacred pillars and asherim on every high hill and beneath every luxuriant tree. There were also male cult prostitutes in the land, and they did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. So if we look at that 
Second Chronicles passage, seems like that passage was pretty kind, not giving all the detail. Um, just saying that the king and all Judah forsook the law of the Lord, but uh, what we see here is that Judah and Rehoboam quickly sunk down to the vilest forms of idolatry. Now, these were practices that involved rampant sexuality in all its vilest forms. According to uh, accompanying all of this was undoubtedly the practice of child sacrifices, which was the ancient equivalent to modern-day abortion. So what we'll see in a second is that by the fifth year, so Rehoboam in his third year rebelled, but by the fifth year, God raised up a foreign king to execute judgment against Rehoboam and Judah. So this descent into total wickedness happened very quickly. It's kind of like a switch was thrown and the whole country went headlong, hurling into all of that sin. Now, I think we can lay a degree of blame on Solomon to an extent. We know that Solomon allowed and even facilitated these grotesque idolatrous practices, even though he, didn't, he wasn't fully given over to his to those practices. His problem was, according to the Lord, that he was not wholly devoted to the Lord. Um, however, he, in a sense, because of what he built, he constructed some of those temples and things, but he made it easy for Rehoboam and the people of Judah to fully give themselves over to this kind of sin. And so while Solomon does bear a degree of guilt for this, he also didn't force anyone into the situation to go down this path. And by the way, Rehoboam knew better than this. Rehoboam made the choice to sin. And we see that when a leader begins to make the choice to sin, what happens to those he leads? They follow. And, it, you know, it, it's odd to see how far and how fast they went down. I think in our culture we've seen although there's definitely seems to be accelerating lately, but we've seen a kind of a long, slow slide into uh, worse and worse things. But here it was immediate. So that by the fifth year, God is raising up a deliverer. So just in two years' time, what they had done was so disgusting to the Lord that he had decided to put an end to it. <coughs> now, we aren't given the specifics of why or how Rehoboam gave in to this temptation and sin. However, I don't think we need a room of geniuses to figure it out. We can make some pretty solid guesses about what precipitated these actions. And I think there's two very clear re reasons that emerge. So the first one is things were going well. Rehoboam was enjoying those early successes. The country was stronger. They were still prosperous. They had recovered from the split with the north. Things were going well with his family. So it's a sad reality that when things are going well, that people often turn their backs on God and following him faithfully. It's kind of like a student before a test who is fervently engaging in prayer and promising to honor the Lord if he'd only help him with that test. And they're repentant about prior sins and striving to do what's right. Then they get an A on the test and start thinking, well, I guess I figured out that test thing. 
I don't, I don't even think I really needed any help. Uh, and then the prayers stop and they decide to celebrate and go out and make some bad decisions. I think to one degree or another, we are all guilty of that kind of thinking, that when things are going well, maybe I don't need to pray so much. Maybe I don't need to be on guard. Um, bad idea. We can't rest on our laurels and let our guards down. So I think to a degree, this was part of what was going on. But secondly, and, and probably more prominently, we have to understand, and I think we know this, that the temptations of sexual sin are rampant and profoundly difficult to overcome, particularly for guys. So I think this area is likely the most significant struggle most men face. And if participating in these kinds of activities is easy and easily accessible and constant and in your face, the temptations become even more daunting to overcome. All throughout history, both biblical history and extra-biblical history, this sin in various forms, or these forms of sin, seem to ultimately come to dominate many people and nations. I think as with many things, Rehoboam was probably not going out deciding to openly rebel against God. I don't think he had a falling out with God. Uh, we're not told, but it doesn't seem like that was probably the case. It's probably likely that he decided, you know what, I want to go see what that's about. Um, I want to go check it out. I want to I see what happens. You know, maybe I'll be okay. And it ensnared him and his conscience became seared, and he stopped caring, and instead gave himself fully to his base desires. And then all Israel, all Judah, said, ooh, that looks like a good idea. We're going to do that too. And so doing, he led Judah into the same sins. And look how bad it was, such that in the first king's passage, says that what they were doing was worse than all the sins Israel had committed before that point. And of course, the Lord cannot simply look the other way. Now, we can tend to look down on Old Testament Israel as somehow being worse than us, but we all know very well that this kind of thing happens everywhere. Just look at our culture today. I actually feel like our nation is provoking the Lord to a level not seen in all of history. It's awful. Of course, that's speaking on a national level, but more individually, how many stories do we know of somebody who was initially faithful in, in ministry, but then fell into temptation and disqualified themselves? How many people in leadership have gotten corrupted by power and money and whatever and compromised? And once they compromise in one area, they start compromising in others. How many celebrities who have everything this world can offer end up addicted to drugs or other vices? How many kids were raised in church hearing good teaching and then go to college and utterly abandon the faith? instead to earning to pursue sin. It's a sad testimony to the sinful hearts of humanity. It also points us clearly to the reality that the Lord must do a work in hearts. The best teaching, the best examples, the strongest warnings cannot be effective apart from the Lord working 
in a heart. And perhaps even more scary is the reality that even we as Christians can fail and fail miserably. We're called to examine ourselves. So when we see a story like this with Rehoboam, it ought to cause a degree of introspection, to ask the tough questions, to repent where necessary, and to strive to live in a holy manner. This is a, this is a call for us to look inward, to make sure that we are doing what we are supposed to do, to be on guard against the appropriate things, to make sure that we're not allowing ourselves to be sucked into the lies of all the forms of temptations that are around us. And as we will see here in the story, God will not allow Rehoboam to continue in sin unchecked. As a result, God sent invaders. He begins to execute judgment upon Rehoboam and Judah. And so there in chapter 12, verse 2, it says, And it came about in King Rehoboam's fifth year that because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots and 600,000 horsemen. And the people who came with him from Egypt were without number, the Lubim, the Sukim, and the Ethiopians. And he captured the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. So clearly here is a direct result to our response to Jeroboam and Judah's Rehoboam and Judah's sons. The Lord raised up an invading army to march on Jerusalem led by the Egyptian king Shishak. Now as you can see, this was a huge army. I mean 60,000 horsemen alone is a big army. But then alongside of that, there was a massive number of foot soldiers that couldn't even be counted. The enormous army just gobbled up the cities that Rehoboam had spent time fortifying and came right on up to Jerusalem. And so at that point, God sent a message to Rehoboam. So continuing on in the, te in the text there in verse 5, we'll see God's pronouncement of judgment and Rehoboam's humility. So it says, then Shemaiah, in verse 5, Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and to the princes of Judah who had gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak, and he said to them, thus says the Lord, you have forsaken me, so I have also forsaken you to Shishak. Clearly the Lord sometimes speaks with irony, but seems reasonable here. You forsook me, so I'm forsaking you. Enjoy. Of course, this is an example of the Lord performing exactly what he promised multiple times to do when Israel sinned. And among the curses that are found in Deuteronomy 28 that would have come about as a result of disobedience was defeat before enemies and enslavement to them such that the conquering nation would demand all their food as payment. But in this case... When this pronouncement is made and the reality of a huge army thundering towards Jerusalem, the response from Rehoboam and his family is actually a positive response. It's a decently good response. So verse 6 says, So the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is righteous. So they affirmed here that the Lord was acting appropriately 
in response to their disobedience, and deliberately they sought to humble themselves before the Lord. So verse 7 says, When the Lord saw that they had humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, saying, They have humbled themselves, so I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some measure of deliverance, and my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by means of Shishak. But they will become his slaves, so that they may learn the difference between my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. So about 31 years before these events, the temple was dedicated in Jerusalem. Only 31 years was the full glory of Solomon's temple. It's 31 years that it lasted. It's kind of sad. In Solomon's dedicatory prayer there, he made a number of requests of God that are in the form of a situation brought on by Israel's sin, an act of confession and prayer by the people, and a request made to the Lord as a result of the confession and prayer. So we can actually look at that in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, where Solomon makes this request. If your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and they return to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication before you in this house. Then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you have given them and to their fathers. And so the request that Solomon was making there was that when God brought judgment in the form of a conquering enemy, that when the people returned to the Lord and prayed to him, that the Lord would hear and respond to that prayer. And in this, key, in this case, as the daunting reality of a significant army was bearing down on Jerusalem and the pronouncement of Shemaiah the prophet, Rehoboam and his sons chose to humble themselves. And as a result, God relented from the original intention of destroying Jerusalem and would allow Jerusalem to remain, although the people would be placed into slavery. Now, just to be clear, talking about this term of slavery, this meant that there would be, and, and what we see probably unfolding, is that there was an agreement that was somehow made between Judah and Jerusalem that they would serve Shishak in exchange for him not coming in and obliterating the city. So this meant that the country would be placed under heavy, heavy taxation known as tribute. And tribute from a conquering nation was intended to be crushing. It was intended to prevent the people placed into service from having the time or resources to organize or fund a revolt. It's like from that point on, your goal is to provide what you are being told to provide. And, and the, it was severe. Um, it could be 70 to 80% of what was produ produced would have to go uh, to, the, to the conquering king. So, and in this specific case, um, well, I'm sorry. So note here that just because somebody humbles themselves does not mean that they can escape all the consequences of sin. In an ultimate sense, yes, I mean, Jesus paid it all. But here on earth, we can and will still experience the consequences of our decisions. In this specific case, God intended for the difficulties that Rehoboam and the country would face as a result, would be a constant reminder and lesson to them. Notice there's a sense of irony again in verse 8 where God says, 
to let that the people would become servants to Shishak so that they would learn the difference between serving God and serving other kingdoms. So for some reason, my boys like enjoy playing the would you rather game where you're forced to choose usually between two really bad things like would you rather eat a cricket or a locust. Um, in this case, God's point is abundantly clear. You can, would you rather serve me and obey me or serve Shishak and others like him? Which is better? You can be forced to serve another master who will not be so kind. You choose. Now another point that resounds to me in this story is the abundant willingness of God to demonstrate his mercy and grace. In this case, there's no indication that Rehoboam fully repented. In fact, he was characterized as an evil king in the summary of his life. But God demonstrated his mercy based, just based on a horribly sinful and evil man showing a bit of humility. Later in our study, we'll see similar verses or similar passages and, and startling responses from God to some horribly evil people as he demonstrates mercy to them. Some of the most unlikely people like Ahab or Manasseh, uh, we will see him. And here again, uh, what we see is Rehoboam, despite being the guy that led Israel into the worst sin that Israel had ever participated in, humbled himself and God responded. Now, yes, he still had some consequences that he had to endure, but what we see is God also showed him a tremendous amount of mercy. One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament is Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, where it says, Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. That is a great reality of the God that we serve, that he longs to find opportunities to demonstrate his mercy and his grace to the people whom he loves. And aren't we thankful for that? What a great God that we serve. So as we move on here, and I'm going to have to accelerate big time, um, we'll see that in verse 9, Shishak actually does come in and plunders Jerusalem and the temple. And what, it, what we're told there is that he took everything. He even took the, uh, the shields that Solomon had made uh, for the temple. And the shields... Uh, he took were made from pure gold and they held about 240 ounces of gold each and there was 200 of them so in today's dollars Shishak removed just with the shields and he removed a lot of other stuff too but just with the shields around 88 million dollars worth of gold from the temple as a result um, Rehoboam makes these sad efforts to try to restore it so he has bronze shields made, uh, but then apparently he was paranoid about them being stolen or something, so he kept them under lock and key, except for when he visited the temple, they would be brought out. It's, I, I kind of see with Rehoboam there, it's like he didn't really want to be reminded about how badly he had messed up. And so he created this, these bronze shields, which can be burnished and kind of look like gold um, to cover up, in a sense, the greatness of his failures. So, and then finally, 
uh, we, we can see that God's mercy was displayed to Rehoboam. Um, verse 12, it says, And when he humbled himself, the anger of the Lord turned away from him so as not to destroy him completely. And also conditions were good in Judah. So King Rehoboam strengthened himself in Jerusalem and reigned. So we see here God fulfilling what he said he would do in restraining Shishak from complete destruction, allowing Rehoboam to continue to reign such that he was even able to strengthen his kingship. And the passage also indicates that the conditions were good. So uh, even though there was, it was a bummer that Shishak came in and carried off things in the temple and such, uh, Rehoboam and the people there were able to live in still relative ease. So life was able to return to normal to a degree. And so, and then lastly, what we see here, and I'm not going to go through this one just for the sake of time, but it's what I'm calling Rehoboam's obituary. Uh, the key thing there is in verse 14. It says that he did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. And that's the, that's the key part of the story, I think, that ultimately Rehoboam failed, and he failed miserably, and and caused the pain and suffering of his people because he was not careful to obey and follow the Lord. So there's a few conclusions and lessons that we can take from this. Most of these I've already mentioned, but just by way of reminder, remind yourselves that when things are going well, we can have a tendency to break from reliance upon God. We can't do that. Um, we must not do that. We also need to be on guard against the insidious dangers of sexual temptation. We also need to be amazed by the eager mercy of the Lord. And then remember that the Lord responds to those who are humble in heart. And then finally, strive with everything you can muster to ensure that you finish the course well. Rehoboam started well, and he ended poorly. Sadly, we are going to see that same song, different verse, king after king after king after king. And I think that's one of the resounding lessons that we need to learn and to encourage ourselves with, is that we have to persevere. We have to keep the faith. We have to keep striving. We have to excel still more. Um, and so I just encourage you to think through those things this week. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for, uh, for giving this to us and for enabling us through your spirit to develop an appropriate understanding. We pray that you would help to, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts to drive these truths home. And we pray that you would cause us to examine ourselves, to think through these things carefully. And we pray that you would be honored through our efforts. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.